4: keep being you and treat yourself to some Conair girl bomb magic you deserve it available at Walgreens
5: this is Lee Habib and this is our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your story send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. And this next story, well, it's the story of Molly Kate Klein. And she's a young fashion designer whose life has far from been easy, but who's come through to be featured in fashion weeks across the country and all at the ripe old age of 20. I
6: applied to Phoenix Fashion Week and what's really cool about Phoenix Fashion Week is that it's more than just a week long event. It's actually a five month boot camp for fashion designers. So they have basically been teaching us and kind of building us as entrepreneurs as well as fashion designers throughout the whole past five months. And then it kind of all ended in the week long Fashion Week event. But a big part of the boot camp program was meeting with investors and pitching ourselves to stores, going through production, and really the whole business side of everything, which was kind of intimidating for me since I'm still in college. The first while was all spent on who we are, what we want to make, what we want to sell, like our brand message, our tagline, and they were really upfront and honest with us about if it was a good idea, a good brand, like our values. And it was really scary because when I design clothes, it's something I'm so passionate about. And I felt like it was being judged right away as soon as I got there. And looking back, I know that it was to help me grow and they've definitely done that. But it's just difficult when your passion is kind of turning into a business a little bit. You kind of have to look at things differently. So that was the first thing that was kind of difficult for me. And another thing that I thought was just kind of funny and interesting was when I got there, everyone was way older than me. And so that was kind of like the running joke all summer, which felt like it was a bad thing because everyone kind of made fun of me for it. But When I met with all the investors, it was the fact that I am 20 years old that made them really like me and made the investors really interested in me and my brand and I guess you could say my potential. So it was just kind of funny that the thing that I felt like was holding me back the whole time is what ended up setting me apart. It's funny because I feel like it hasn't only been in Phoenix Fashion Week, but I feel like almost my whole life I've been either the youngest doing something or just sort of the underdog. But it's cool because it almost doesn't phase me anymore. It's hard because I feel like, and I know that other people have more experience than me, but I just know that experience comes with time and you can't complain about where you haven't been yet. You just have to work on getting there. When I think about it and where I am now in college, I'm not the underdog anymore. I'm going to go into the industry having this really cool experience that not everyone gets to do. So I'm feeling really grateful.
7: Molly Kate's brand has been 20 years in the making.
6: Molly Kate Klein hasn't always been Molly Kate Klein. I was actually born Molly Ross, that's my birth name, up until I was in fifth grade. Leading up to fifth grade, I was very, very close to my dad. My dad was my favorite person, and um, I'd kinda joke around with my mom and say that my dad was like the fun, cool parent. <laughs> we would always, um, just always be having a fun time goofing around and I never saw him struggle at all and I was a really happy kid and it's like that all kind of changed all at once when my mom told me that my dad passed away and it wasn't until later on when I was about 16 that Um, my mom had told me that he passed away due to suicide which was big news but at the same time I knew I knew that it happened just because I just kind of had that feeling but when I was nine and nine years old in fifth grade you don't automatically think about those things. You just think about how happy he was and how happy you were, you know, spending time with your dad. And so, going back to school was really difficult because this happened just weeks before fifth grade started. So, I went into school completely a mess and very confused. And I really struggled with whether or not I should tell people about my dad or whether that was something to keep to myself. And so I kind of told some people, didn't tell some people. And I don't know if it's just something about being you know, nine, 10 years old, but when people found out about it, some people thought it was funny. Some people wanted to make fun of it. Some people just wanted to ask a lot of questions. And it really just became like a topic for everyone to talk about and make fun of me for and I remember changing my appearance drastically because my name did change so my last name was Ross and it changed to Klein after um, I was adopted but then I asked if I could change my first name from Molly to Molly Kate because my dad chose the name Kate and he always called me Molly Kate. So that's kind of how I wanted to keep his his memory in my name. And everyone made fun of me for it. No one understood it. They just kind of thought, who's this girl? Why is her name different? And it was just a topic of conversation.
5: What a thing to do as a young person, to to sort of honor the father's memory. What Molly Kate Klein does despite this and how she moves forward in her life, Molly Kate Klein's story continues here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the Great American Stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we return to the story of Molly Kate Klein here on Our American Stories. The bullying she faced and the passion that was born from all of it is what we're about to get into now. And my goodness, it's quite a story.
6: My only way of really coping with the bullying and everything that I was feeling was through sewing. It was just what I wanted to learn How to do, and I was nine years old, and when my name changed to Molly Kate Klein, I thought it sounded like a fashion designer. (laughs) And I was just kind of determined. I said, Mom, like I want to get a sewing machine, I want to go to fashion school, like I wanna start making my own clothes, and that's what I did. I taught myself how to sew when I was about ten. Started wearing my creations to school totally got made fun of it made the bullying a million times worse But I always felt Something inside of me telling me that it was going to be okay and that I was meant to be doing what I was doing and I thought that since I had this you know, cool fashion designer name. I should change my appearance. So I like chopped off my hair. I dyed it like bleach blonde. I had glasses. I started like changing the way I dressed. It was really just a way for me to kind of distract myself. And that's what made the bullying even worse. It definitely didn't help um, that I had like extremely crooked buck teeth and acne and glasses, I was just like the epitome of who fifth graders would make fun of. And it was a really long year of eating lunch in the bathroom, not going to recess, hiding at recess, basically as stereotypical as they make it seem in the movies, that's definitely how it was for me. I remember being afraid to walk home from, like, the bus stop because kids would follow me home and throw things at me, and I'd get things thrown at me on the bus, threatened to get beat up, but I just sat there just sketching clothes, and I had a few friends who were really supportive of it, and I would pretend to sketch them outfits to wear, and I'm really thankful for them because if I didn't have those few couple friends, i probably probably would have um, been a lot sadder and I don't know what I would have done but thankfully by the time sixth grade came around things got a little bit better and then middle school things started to look better because I could have more friends and meet new people but for a while there it felt like a midlife crisis at nine years old. I completely just changed who I was but in a sense I kind of just feel like I became who I believe God wanted me to be. So I look at it as a negative time, but also a really positive transformational time at the same time. This went on all throughout middle school, high school, into college, just feeling almost attacked by maybe peers, people around me just for being a little different, being quiet, being introverted, and people not really understanding passion and creativity and just kind of like what I do and never really felt like I fit in anywhere, but I've always had this little drive, this voice inside me saying to just stick with it because it's for a purpose, it's for something. Around the time I was 16 was when one of my very best friends, Allie, passed away and it was extremely shocking to everybody. I remember it was just a couple days after my 16th birthday, and I kind of wondered, you know, like why she wasn't at my birthday party and what was going on. But we had found out that Allie had taken her own life and it was extremely hard because Allie was really close to me and my mom and my sisters and I kind of grew up with her and I guess you could say the topic of suicide became really prevalent to me almost. It was on my mind a lot, not in the sense of necessarily me wanting to act on that but just the idea of it and how it has played out through my life and after hearing that about Allie, I just had this feeling in me like that was how I lost my dad as well, even though that was never told to me yet. So I had asked my mom and we kinda had this talk and she verified that for me. And it was within probably two weeks after that that I had joined with some other students at my school and some other parents to create an anti-suicide kind of group. And um, this was a nonprofit organization where we created a website for students who needed help to just go online and have mental health resources. And that was very, very, recent after losing Allie and kind of hearing about my dad and it was definitely the way that I dealt and kind of coped with their losses. So we did a lot of work with this organization and ended up raising a lot of money for the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention participating in their annual walks every year and my journalism teacher and I actually went down to the Ohio Senate and we talked with them about expanding a house bill for mandating mental health education K-12 through in Ohio. So that's something that is still in the works because, um, I don't know, changing house bills definitely takes years. But I really just became fascinated at this point in my life to stop anything that was really telling teens and just people in general that they weren't enough and i just became fascinated with suicide prevention and it was definitely a coping mechanism for me but that's when i became a mental health advocate and it was about a year or two later, once I was in college, when I was approached by Teen Vogue to write some mental health articles for them. They have an online course that you can take that is connected to Parsons School of Design, like the top design school in New York, to learn about the fashion industry. So I took it in high school at the very end of my senior year because I was like super excited for college to start for fashion school. So I did the program, and then a year later, once I was already in college, um, Teen Vogue sent out an email to everyone who did the fashion program, and you just get like a little certificate at the end. And they said that they were interested in. Kind of hearing our feedback of like what we thought about the program. So I emailed them back and they went to my page and started looking at like everything I do. It's mental health, but it's fashion and photography. And they had their wellness editor reach out to me and they were like, hey, you're a mental health advocate. Can you do mental health writing for us? And that's when I flew out there and I met with the like mental health team. And they've never once, like we've never talked about fashion. It's just always been mental health. (laughs) So I don't know, it's kind of funny, but it's cool. So it's definitely been something that will always be important to me. And I'm always trying to find new ways to, I don't know, always support that and include it in everything I do. I know now that I'm starting my fashion company, um, I'm giving back 10% of everything I make to the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. So, and that's just in honor of my dad and kind of how my story started.
5: And my goodness, not just one suicide, but surviving two. And when we come back, you're not gonna believe what Molly Kate Klein does next with her life on our American stories.
1: Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more.
9: and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.
5: This is Our American Stories, and now for the final part of Molly Kate Klein's story and the secret to this young lady's fulfillment.
6: Around the time I was 16 in high school, I started to go to a Bible study, and I kind of fell out of place because I didn't grow up in the church at all. But when I went there, I I kind of started to like it, and every time I felt like I was close to really understanding and enjoying Bible study. and. Just the idea of becoming Christian, I kind of took a step back and I struggled because I kept asking myself this question and I kept asking, you know, if God was real, why would he take my father away? And I asked myself that for a long time until I finally just asked the leader of the church group and they kind of had a talk with me and they said don't you think that his death has had to happen for some reason? And I don't don't know if that's exactly how they said it, word for word, but the point of what they were saying was that no matter how or why that happened, it's most likely that it's because God wanted something to come out of it. And as soon as they said that, I felt comforted because they didn't know that I was kind of into fashion design and I felt like that was a calling in a sense. And I just felt like that was the answer to what they were saying. That maybe um, maybe this loss was to ignite some sort of drive inside of me to make a difference, whether that is in sustainability and fashion design or in mental health awareness. I felt like I had this like purpose inside of me in a sense, but I didn't know who or why exactly who put it there, why it was there, and going to Bible study and learning about Jesus and becoming a Christian definitely kind of put all the puzzle pieces together for me that I don't know, that there is purpose in life and a reason for everything, and so it's definitely been my faith that has solidified for me um, kind of this crazy journey that I've been on in the direction that I'm going in, and I feel like that is the driving force in everything that I'm doing right now, so I feel really, really happy about that. Last year, it's crazy to me to think that that was already a year ago because it feels like it just happened, but about a year ago, I really decided that I wanted to make a fashion line that could tell a story and was a little more meaningful than a lot of clothing that I was making. And I was working with my youth leader, as i was reading the bible i really could picture it as a visual story and a visual story that i wanted to maybe show on the runway so throughout the course of oh gosh at least half a year i met with my youth leader and we went through the bible taking notes and Took those notes to implement into a six piece couture fashion line. So, this fashion line I called Histoire de Dieu, which is French for the story of God, and it basically told the story of the Bible through a four piece narrative that went through creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And this was by far my most favorite project I've ever worked on. started out, the very first piece was a look from the Garden of Eden, and it just went on through there to kind of just to show this the arc and the narrative of the Bible through these kind of elaborate couture designs. So it was extremely fun, and what made it so much better was at the end of me kind of creating this collection. It actually got accepted into New York Fashion Week. So that was literally a dream come true because that's something that little nine-year-old me was dreaming of and I thought maybe would happen by the time I was maybe 40 or 50, but um, that was incredible. When I got to New York Fashion Week, I had all my models lined up and they were models that were, you know, randomly selected for me. And something had happened before the show where in the chaos of backstage, because backstage of New York Fashion Week is insane, people running around like crazy, and I'm still not even exactly sure what happened, but my models had to end up walking the runway. For another designer before me and it left me without any models like 15 minutes before my show and I'm freaking out and they tell me that they have some backup models and I was upset because I was like, why are you calling them backup models? Like, that's so offensive, and it made me feel really sad for them. And I was like, well, go get them. Like, they're not backup models, they're my models. Like, I want to meet them. And when they brought in the girls, it was really funny because they were all like my age, and I became immediate friends with them right away. And when I saw them, I kind of realized that. They were who I was picturing wearing this fashion line the whole time that I had been working on it for you know like half a year, and I was like, Okay, like this is gonna work out, this is gonna be good. And I started, um, kind of putting the clothes on everybody, and I was explaining to each model how I wanted them to walk because I wanted each girl to walk a little differently based on. What part of the Bible they were kind of representing? Whether I wanted to walk, have them walk, um, kind of like happy and free and flowing, or maybe a little more like angry or mad. And so I explained to them the narrative of the clothing line, and everyone started crying. And I was like, "You can't cry right now. Like you're like you're gonna mess up your makeup. You're gonna have to walk on the runway." And and they were just crying and they looked at me and every single one of them were like, oh my gosh, like I'm a Christian too. And I was, it was so cool. I was like, nah, like that's crazy. And it was just so cool that, um, because before I had left to go to the show, as I was like on my way there, I was praying and I just asked God to surround me with the people that he wanted to be a part of this and it was just really cool because he definitely ended up doing that and um, those girls are still some, some of my closest friends to this day, I still talk to all of them. So I thought it was really cool that God kind of brought us all together and that they could be a part of it.
5: And great job, Robbie, on that piece, bringing us Molly Kate Klein's story. And it's a story of adversity and trials. And it's also a God story. And we bring them to you now and then. We don't shy away from them. And in terms of suicide prevention, we've done any number of stories about suicide. We don't shy away from these stories. We've done miscarriage stories too. And we've done eulogies. Death's a part of life. We don't shy away from it. And well, it's coming to everybody. Molly Kate Klein's story, folks, a good one here on Our American Stories.
1: Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long.
5: This is Our American Stories, and up next, an important story about our own history. In 1803, the United States bought the Louisiana Territory from France, doubling the size of this country. Here's our own Monty Montgomery and Dr. Brad and Deidre Berzer with the story.
7: The year is 1803 and four people, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston, James Monroe, and Napoleon are about to get involved in one of the most interesting land deals in history. Here's Brad Berzer and Deidre Berzer of Hillsdale College with more.
10: So the Louisiana Purchase was one of those fascinating moments in, really, world history, not just in American history, but you have that moment where Napoleon is trying so hard to maintain his grasp and his control on things going on in Europe and in the colonies. But because of the Haitian Revolution, he loses control of the West Indies, and it takes him a lot of money and a lot of manpower, a lot of resources to try and reclaim that. And when he gets bogged down trying to reclaim Haiti, he decides that one of the best things to do in the New World is get rid of Louisiana, which the French, of course, had controlled for centuries and uh, wanted to recontrol control again. I mean, they believed that they could recreate New France in some way and maybe in a very revolutionary direction. But once the Haitian Revolution happened and Napoleon started losing his grip on the New World, he decided that it was really in his best interest to get as much money as possible, actual specie, get money, uh, get as much money as possible and sell off the possibility or the obligations that he had in North America.
11: New Orleans is incredibly important in this too. So, in New Orleans, the Spanish had Declared that the right to deposit was no longer going to be allowed. So that meant that traders could no longer stockpile their goods in New Orleans, waiting for ships to take them out. So Livingston had been sent by Jefferson to France to try to buy New Orleans and West in south florida (laughs) to buy florida and so that's what they had permission to do when napoleon then presented this offer of buying all of louisiana and they couldn't get a message across the atlantic fast enough for jefferson to weigh in on it so uh, monroe was due in the next day as secretary of state so it was really up to livingston and monroe what to do and um they had to figure that out really kind of second guessing what would Jefferson want them to do and they said yes we will buy Louisiana and so Napoleon supposedly said something along the lines of what will you give it to me for right? I mean what will you give me for it
10: and he does so with 15 million dollars. Once he does that, we gain an extra 800,000 square miles, one of the largest land deals ever done in world history. It almost, not quite, but almost doubled the legal size of the United States at that point. And that means that we're purchasing acreage at about three cents an acre, which is why it makes it one of the most important and weirdest land deals in history.
7: But despite the amazing deal on land, The purchase wasn't without controversy. Jefferson himself was
10: reluctant to make the purchase only because he didn't know if Article 2 of the the U.S. Constitution or even if the Constitution as a whole allowed us to purchase land. But there was a huge difference in acquiring land and paying for land. So they they made a a strong distinction between what we would call expansionism versus what would have been called imperialism at the time. Uh, Jefferson was an anti-imperialist. But he was very pro-expansion. And people in his party, like his secretary or his, uh, the Speaker of the House at the time, John Randolph of Roanoke, was adamantly opposed to the possibility of the executive using money this way and using the executive power to purchase land for a lot of reasons. One, they were worried about what would happen to the American Indian. They were worried about the question of slavery. Jefferson, of course, was adamantly against slavery in the West, Uh, adamantly, but there was still this worry. And it also, there was a worry that there was being too much power being given into the executive so when we look back now we celebrate it's become so much a part of our, our narrative as an american people that it's very hard for us to question it but at the time it was truly questioned and it caused a lot of political problems Jefferson himself had qualms, but he decided that it was worth the risk simply because the opportunity was so great. And as Deidre said, was so chancy because Napoleon was problematic and he was moody and you didn't know exactly what he was going to do on one day or the next day. And here was this opportunity. And so Jefferson decided just to go ahead and make the most of it. And one of the reasons that Lewis and Clark were being sent out as quickly as they were was to show and demonstrate that this Louisiana purchase was worth it worth it. You know, they did have some sort of idea of what was in Louisiana, but most of it was rumors. And Jefferson's own ideas changed about changed on this pretty dramatically. Uh, If you look at some of his writings in the 1780s and the 1790s, Jefferson was convinced that there were certain vapors that the West breathed. uh, And maybe these came from stories of Yellowstone, but that there were vapors that allowed the Indians to be physically superior to the European. He thought that in the West there were still probably mastodons. There were various kinds of of ancient creatures still running around and in large part because of these vapors that were supposedly were being breathed but and I say all of this because it's I mean it it sounds so absurd to us now. By 1803 Jefferson had calmed down on a lot of this and wasn't so convinced that there had been these kind of uh, almost mythical elements of the West but those mythical elements certainly helped shape how we viewed the West.
7: But even some of their more serious views on things that potentially existed in the West would seem a bit strange today.
10: They wanted to see if there was a passage to Japan and China and to India and find out if there was a way to have a trade route in which America could gain control over that Eastern trade and outcompete Europe as well. There was this strange vision, and it's an old Enlightenment vision, but it's the idea that land has to have symmetry to it. So if Eastern America had the Appalachian Mountains and it had the Mississippi River, then Western America had to have the equivalent of the Appalachian Mountains and the equivalent of a Mississippi River. Now, that's ridiculous, of course, and we know land doesn't work that way, but that was part of 18th century thought on the way that creation worked, that there would have to be that symmetry. But even if we don't take it to that level, you can imagine what 800,000 square miles of farmland would mean for the average European coming over to America. I mean, this is a paradise, an absolute paradise. The same land had been farmed for generation after generation, sometimes thousands of years in Europe. And now suddenly there's what they called virgin soil or virgin land in America. This this seemed Edenic or utopian to them. And uh, they certainly believed that they had this gift from God that is this, this huge amount of land and that they should take as much of that as they can not in a greedy sense but in the sense that it needed to be used in the way that God wanted it to be used as we see in Genesis where God gives stewardship and dominion to man. Jefferson personally of course was
7: not that religious but Jefferson did see expansion into the west as something that was glorious and important for America.
10: In 1801 Jefferson said, a rising nation spread over a wide and fruitful land, traversing all the seas with the rich productions of their industry, engaged in commerce with nations who feel power and forget right, advancing rapidly to destinies beyond the reach of mortal eye. When I contemplate these transcendent objects and see the honor, the happiness and the hopes of this beloved country committed to the issue and the auspices of this day, I shrink before the contemplation and humble myself before the magnitude of the undertaking and that that was critical for Jefferson this idea that this land is this gift that's given to us to attempt a republic to actually see if we can have an agrarian republic and Jefferson makes this statement at the time and this you know, we think about the cemetery being odd and the fact that there might be mastodons with possibilities just bizarre uh, when we look back especially I mean given Jefferson maybe the the most intelligent mind ever born on on North or South American soil. How could he think like that? Well, let me put it this way. One way to think about America is always to understand the West as its future. If America is to have a future, it will always be in the West. That was the understanding in the late 18th and early 19th century. So when you talked about the West, you're really talking about America and what America is. There was that much of an identification with what the West was and what the frontier was. So that's part of what Jefferson is playing into when he's able to go ahead and purchase these 800,000 square miles. Part of the reason he's able to do that is because of this great myth of America. It's not a false myth, I think it's a true myth, but this myth of, well, what is the West? The West is our future, and we definitely have to secure it.
5: And great job as always, Samanti, and a special thanks to Dr. Brad and Deidre Berzer. The story of the Louisiana Purchase here on Our American Story.